we need to start bringing that same thinking of what are we working on, what can go wrong, what are we going to do about it, from the technical threats like spoofing and tampering to the social threats like bad reviews, fake reviews, trolling, harassment, death threats. You know, for example, there's all sorts of smart language processing today. Why is it that it's so easy to write a death threat and have it post to Twitter? We, we've all seen people swarmed by, by mobs of bots. Why is it that that's still happening? I think we need smarter, better defenses at the human layer. From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Adam Shostak. Adam is a leading expert on threat modeling and a technologist, author, and game designer. He's helped create the CVE and many other things. He currently helps many organizations improve their security and advises startups. While at Microsoft, he was the lead designer of the SDL Threat Modeling 2 version 3 and created the Elevation of Privilege game. He has authored many security books. Adam and I are both LinkedIn learning instructors and we teach on cybersecurity topics. Adam, welcome to our podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so thrilled to have you be here. I had to ask, you are one of a handful of threat modeling experts in the world. From my experience at Sigital, I understand that there are few and threat modeling is hard. And I'd really like to know why are there so few threat modeling experts and what makes it so hard? I wish I knew. Threat modeling involves both hard technical skills and some very soft skills. We do analysis and we're looking at a system and you need to have a breadth of security knowledge to do that analysis. And then you have to have the compassion for the person building the system to not call their baby ugly. And usually the people who are good at one don't spend a lot of time on the other. And I think that's one of the reasons that threat modeling can be so difficult. That makes so much sense to me. So Adam, that being the case, what is the best way for someone to learn basic threat modeling concepts? So the, the easiest way is for me to teach them right now. There's four key questions. What are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? And did we do a good job? And we start from the question of what are we working on? Because frankly, if you don't know that, I can't help you. Right. And yep. if you come in as a consultant, you can ask, what are we working on here? If you're a member of the team, you can ask, what are we working on? This sprint, this iteration to ensure that everyone is on the same page and that you've got some scope for the next question. What can go wrong? Here, a lot of people like to talk about brainstorming in some way and bringing their expertise to bear. And I gotta say, I train a lot of people in threat modeling and I had this amazing experience last week. I was at this company and these, these people have been shipping physical product for a long time. They know how to engineer things. 
And in my classes, what we do is we first do a brainstorm exercise and then we do an exercise using stride, which is a mnemonic for finding threats. And I'll explain stride in a second. But what I want to share is after we did the exercise, we were talking about what did that, what did you learn? How do you think about the two now that you can compare and contrast them? And someone said, you know, I felt so good about our brainstorming. And then I used this new thing. And all of a sudden I felt bad about what I had just done. And I think that's so important to understand that these structures like stride, spoofing, tampering, repudiation, Mm -hmm. information disclosure, denial of service, and elevation of privilege help you structure your analysis of a system, help you look at it and say, what can go wrong? And when you're done going through that mnemonic, you can say, yep, I feel like I've actually done an analysis. If you're in a rat hole, it can pull you out of the rat hole by saying, okay, enough with the tampering threats. Let's move on to information disclosure now. Let's move on to denial of service. And I think this goes back to your first question, which is why is it hard? Is because mm-hmm. there's this weird mix. On the one hand, we all know how to do it. We all threat model, you know, Bruce Schneier was talking recently about you go go into a grocery store and you ask, how would I shoplift? You ask yourself, how would I smuggle a weapon through the airport security line? Not that we're going to do this, but it's just this Mm. way of looking at the world, right? How do I break this thing? How do I violate the rules? And the people who think that way, a lot of us go into security. Then we ask people who might be upstanding citizens to think this way. And they don't know how to do it. They're not comfortable doing it. And that makes it hard Mm -hmm. for them to do the analysis. That's very interesting. Adam, I really like thinking about approaching threat modeling that way. And I'm curious to know for yourself, did you always think that way? As a young person, were you always thinking about how things might be able to be misused? How did you become interested in computer science and in security? So when I was growing up, I was always interested in how things work and what you could make them do. I grew up in the era of the Apple II and the Commodore 64. And so computers were there and let's play with the computer. Let's learn how to make the computer work. And computers were simpler. Figuring out what they did, it was not so difficult. And so after college, I got a job as a systems administrator at a medical research lab. And we were doing work on human patients in very complicated situations. And as a systems admin, I was responsible for security. And I discovered that I was good at it, that I enjoyed it. And at the time, there was no security industry. There were no companies building security products in the way we think of them now. And so I went, I broke some things. I attended conferences like Computers, Freedom, and Privacy and DEF CON. And as I did that, and as as I learned the security industry started to appear and a lot of people I knew 
were doing these things professionally. They were getting venture capital. They were building products. And so it's been, it's been a very interesting evolution that these, these things, you know, I remember when Dan Farmer and Vitsi Venema wrote Satan and Dan lost his job for writing a vulnerability scanner. The, the world has changed. We've, we're acknowledging that we need to look at the things we build in these new ways in order to make them secure for the world in which, in which we live. It's been a really interesting journey. It's been a really interesting evolution. Cool. Adam, I wonder if you would consider sharing with our listeners your reflection on yourself as a very technical person and as a person who is very good at some soft skills. Would you consider sharing with us your evolution of how you came to be very good at these two areas that are not always found in the same person. So, so I was the beneficiary of some frank feedback. For example, I, I remember being at a black hat and I had just spoken and someone told me that my, my talks were academic and dry. And I, I thought about it and I said, well, that's interesting. No, they're not. They're fun. I like my talks. And then I thought about it some more and I realized that she was right. And so now when I, when I get up and speak, I, I work hard to be more energetic. I work hard to have a hook. I use Star Wars a lot to draw people in with some fun imagery and, and analogies. And what I learned over the years is that however technical you might be, a lot of the things that you need to do involve convincing other people to do things differently. A lot of the things you need to do involve convincing a software engineer to write their code differently. Or more importantly than than convincing them, Understanding why do they do things the way they do? Why do people pick bad passwords? Because it's hard to remember 100 good passwords. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's stop telling people to not write down their passwords. Let's start encouraging them to use a password manager. And I have a lot of colleagues who like to laugh at people for putting their passwords in a little password book. Come on, folks. Really? Once you've laughed at someone, they're not going to listen to a thing you say ever again. Don't do mm. it. Right? And yeah. if you want to be yeah. successful, and this is really important, if you want to be successful at changing behavior, at changing something in the world, you need to understand why it is that way. And so the, the answer to your question of why do I spend time on the soft skills? And you know, sometimes it's a struggle for me. I'm, I'm an introverted person. I don't like speaking in public, but speaking in public is an important part of how to get the word out about things. And so I do it. The reason I do it is because I'd like to teach people how to threat model. I'd like to help them succeed at threat modeling because I, 
seen it work in so many different places to help people develop more secure products. So it's worthwhile to me to invest, to listen, to believe that the people giving me feedback and saying, you're not doing this well, might have my best interest at heart, might want to help me. And that belief that the people around me have good intentions, right? That's a soft skill. Believe that the developer has good intentions. Believe that the system admin has good intentions. Believe that the end user has good intentions. That's a powerful framing for getting things done, for making the world better. That is so cool. And I will say that myself and our listeners, we're so glad that you are an introvert and you also like to teach and you also like to see other people succeed. And, and I want to say thank you for sharing this information with us. I'd like to follow that up by asking you about one of your proudest moments. Uh, this is something that you were sharing with me the other day about your auto run work and mm -hmm. both the technical work that went into making that happen as well as all the other stuff. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what was that experience like for you? So, so I didn't set out to fix auto run. A number of people had made a really strong case for the security value of making that change. And they didn't succeed at pushing that change. What I was doing was really focused on a different set of questions. And out of the data that I had pulled together, my, my boss's boss said, you know, you might be able to fix auto run with this. And I was like, yeah, that seems, that seems unlikely. I knew these people had tried and not succeeded. So I didn't want, I really didn't want to do it. And, and he, he pushed. And so I, I went and started talking to people about what would it take to make this happen? Look at this data, look at this data. And between the data and a willingness to say, okay, you're expressing this concern. I'm going to address this concern. Someone else expressed another concern. I'll address it. And really taking away the opportunity for anyone to say, Adam hasn't considered this impact of this change. You know, at the end of the day, Microsoft, and we've, we've talked about this, Microsoft doesn't like to change features because developers depend on those features. Microsoft put auto run in because if you remember back in the 90s, there was the whole insert this CD and then type C D colon install.exe. People didn't do yep. that well, right? <laughs> <laughs> Auto run is a feature, not a bug. And it was a feature that got abused. And so convincing people that we should change the way XP and Vista worked was really a challenge because it went against a commitment that we had made to our customers, to our development ecosystem. 
it was the right thing to do. And eventually everyone got on board with that. And the value of having done that is millions of infections didn't happen. And so that was really high impact. I'm proud that I achieved that, that I was able to help people like that. And it was really a matter of that mix of technical skill and being able to understand the organization's needs and the real underlying reasons that no one wanted the change to occur. Very cool. One of the things that I really like that you said is you wanted to take something away from people. You wanted to take away the ability for them to say, Adam hasn't considered this impact or this change. Um, And it occurs to me that one of the things about threat modeling and one of the things about the way in which you think as I'm, as I'm getting to know you is that you do think about what is going to be impacted and who is going to change. And that includes people and technology and processes. And that leads me to a question for you, Adam. You've done so many cool things in your career. And I want to know what's next for you and what are you thinking about these days? Well, thank you. And what I'm thinking about these days, as I, as I look out at the world, we have more and more social technologies. We have more and more user-generated content. How do we think about threat modeling in that context? And I'll give you a specific example. When, when there's a restaurant that's in the news because of something that's happening politically, Yelp will go in and put up an interstitial page that prevents you from writing a review. And it says things like, hey, this restaurant has been in the news lately, um, so please don't review it on the basis of the news. Review it on the basis of your experience. Those are technical choices that Yelp is putting in place to manage a human conflict, right? This desire that people have to go and slag a restaurant because of a news story they saw on TV or on Twitter. And, and by the way, I don't want to pick on Yelp here. I'm just using them as an example. And, yep. and what I want to say is they made a set of choices in the design of that interstitial to tell people how to get around their defense, right? It says write a review about the restaurant. So, okay, I read that, I click okay, and I write a review that says, hey, I had bad service, right? My food, my, my hamburger was cold and my server was rude. I'm never coming back. Hmm. Maybe we shouldn't tell people what the criteria for reviews are. Maybe we should because it's a usability issue. We need to start bringing that same thinking of what are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? from the technical threats like spoofing and tampering to the social threats like bad reviews, fake reviews, trolling, harassment, death threats. 
you know, for example, there's all sorts of smart language processing today. Why is it that it's so easy to write a death threat and have it post to Twitter? Right? We, we've all seen people swarmed by, by mobs of bots. Why is it that that's still happening? I think we need smarter, better defenses at the human layer. Right. We also see some of this with what's happening. You know, we're recording this. Came out yesterday that Twitter is banning all political advertising on its platform. Facebook still accepts that political advertising, but they're um, they're restricting the use of the eggplant emoji because it is sometimes used in too sexual a context. Hmm. <laughs> Is that the right mm. choice? We need, I think we as engineers need a framework that allows us to consider these things in a structured and systematic way, the same way we think about other threats to the systems, right? There is definitely a human element to these conversations, and there is a technical element. There is a technical set of defenses we can build. There are technical implications to those defenses, and we can learn about these. We can gather information. And so I've been, I've been working, I've been trying to think a little bit in public about this. And so I've got a little GitHub site where I'm bringing together resources I see on conflict modeling, trying to organize them. So people struggling with these problems have a place to start. And I would love, I would love more collaborators. I would love to be working on this problem with other people who care about it so that we can work faster, so that we can build with each other and help organizations do a better job at navigating these new sorts of threats. So cool. I will say that as a parent, I've got these two young kids. And they're growing up in this world. And I wonder to myself, what are the different conflicts that my children are going to have to deal with in their lives? Um, Mm -hmm. And certainly technology in their lifetime is very different from what it was when I was younger growing up. Um, And and I really like sort of this holistic way in which you see things. I, I, I think that one of the neat themes that's emerged during our discussion today is we live in a world that's full of technology there is a great value in understanding something about the technology. There's also a great value in understanding all the rest of the stuff. Adam, I have enjoyed our conversation today so much. And some of the themes that have really emerged for me are, we live in a world that's full of technology. And it occurs to me that you have a particularly deep understanding of both engineering and how that works, as well as sort of human societal structures and how those work. And so as a final question for today's podcast, I'll ask you, what advice do you have for our listeners? Hmm, it's a big question. So let me give two pieces of advice, if I may. The first is learn to code a little. I'm not saying you have to become a professional programmer. I'm not saying you have to write production quality code. Pick a language like Python 
Haskell, write a little bit of code, solve some problem you have with code. It'll give you an understanding of how computers work that is better. It will give you sympathy and compassion for the developers who you are working with. And so learn to code a little, I think, is important in today's world. The second piece of advice that I want to give is from Hamilton, and that is talk less, smile more. I think that we as technologists, we as humans, often don't feel heard. We don't feel, and and I realize I'm saying this on a podcast where y'all are listening to me, but we don't feel heard necessarily. And the, the whole talk less, smile more really helps people feel like you are listening to them, feel like they have a chance to express themselves. And when you give people a chance to express themselves, you learn from them, your ability to collaborate with them goes through the roof. And so one technical bit of advice, one human bit of advice. Awesome. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. Thank you for teaching us both in today's podcast and through all of your work. Uh, We really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's been great to be here and hopefully it was fun for your listeners too. I think so. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.